Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Hour of Power podcast, where we look into a subject and we try to become experts about it. I'm one of your hosts, Cameron, and joining me, as always, is my partner in crime, uh, in crime, I guess, crime against real education or real expertise, <laughs> uh, Caleb, <laughs> you're joining me. Yeah, Cam, uh, we we came on Monday, we did a study, yep. uh, 60 Minutes on Education, that podcast came out on Tuesday, it went really well, yep. um, but today I'm almost intimidated because we have a true expert in this field joining us, uh, a, it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, a true expert indeed. Uh, Caleb, like you said there, we looked into schooling earlier in the week, we did an hour of research onto it to see how much we could learn. And so for anyone who's new around here, feel free to go back to the last episode where we tried to become experts on schooling. That's where we did a lot of research and we really uncovered a lot for ourselves. But now today we've got an actual expert on to make sure we've got it all correct or even Fact to correct Check Friday is here. That's yeah. right. So who do we have, Caleb? Who's our expert joining us today? That's right. We've got Dr. Kevin Donnelly. He is one of Australia's leading conservative public intellectuals and cultural warriors. It really is a privilege to have him yep. on the podcast today because he appears frequently in written radio and television media nationally with, you know, brands you may have heard of, the Australian ABC, 2GB Radio, Sky News. Yeah, uh, like John just Howard, even, even last night, right. even last night he was on Sky mm-hmm. News. So, I mean, that's, uh, that's pretty crazy. He's gone from Sky News straight onto the podcast. So that's pretty good. That's right. And in terms of endorsements, well, it doesn't get much better than a prime minister. John Howard said this, Kevin Donnelly is a persuasive contributor to the endless battle of ideas. He fights the good fight. How good? Uh, currently, Kevin is an ACU senior research fellow, uh, and he's all he was also a teacher for 18 years, Cam. So he's, he's done everything there is he's, to do as far as yeah. I'm concerned, but we'll find out what he thinks about that. Well, he's <laughs> truly qualified to come on the podcast as an expert. So let's jump into our conversation. <laughs> with Dr. Kevin Donnelly right now. Well, joining us, Dr. Kevin Donnelly, I can't believe we found some white space in your calendar this year, perhaps, um, to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. It's an absolute honour. No, always my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on the show. No, it truly is our pleasure. Perhaps before we dive into um, breaking down this 60-minute study that Cameron and I have done around education, can can we get an overview of your background? You've just released um, a brand new book alongside a a lot of others that's creating quite a bit of, let's call it, uh, noise uh, in the media here in Australia and and around the world as well, I think. Um, But give us an overview of, of perhaps your work in the education space so far and where that's led you to today. Yeah, well, uh, I'm a bit older than the two of you, (laughs) and uh, many years ago I did an undergraduate degree in English and politics, and because I was bonded, we were on student ships back in the day, so I always wanted to be a teacher, so I then did dip ed and taught in schools for about 18 years around Melbourne, government and non-government, mainly secondary schools, and I became very interested. In the day, I was a member of the Victorian Secondary Teachers Association, which is now the Australian Education Union, which are a very cultural left uh, group, left of centre. And I got involved in that, uh, and there was a lot of debate back then about the role of education in society more broadly. And uh, I got intrigued with all of this. Uh, and went back and did postgraduate. So I did a master's 
and then a doctorate, mainly in the curriculum, trying to work out what was happening in schools in terms of <laughs> a lot of changes and developments. I mean, classroom teachers often, you know, we get dropped on from on high in terms of what we're supposed to do. Mm. And so I got heavily involved in uh, curriculum. I'm committed to a more liberal view of education, which is more about uh, what Matthew Arnold, the English poet, talked about uh, the best that's been thought and said. T.S. Eliot, the English poet, talks about truth and and beauty. Uh, So I'm more committed to education being uh, about, uh, you know, literature, physics, math, science, whatever it might be, art, but doing it in an objective, impartial way and trying to introduce young people to Western culture, mainly Western civilization, although obviously there are other cultures. But that really all changed during the late 60s and early 70s. There was what we had, uh, what we now call the Cultural Revolution, in terms of moratoriums, uh, anti-Vietnam demonstrations, the whole uh, hippie movement, uh, Woodstock. There was a, a sort of a, an explosion, if you like, around the world uh, in, in London, Paris, New York, Melbourne, Sydney. Uh, there was a whole youth rebellion, and that had a significant impact on education. And in a long-winded way, what I'm saying is uh, I've been tracking this for the last... 40, 50 years, mm. and just keeping up to date with the impact it's had. And a couple of years ago, I reviewed the national curriculum, which kind of culminated a lot of that because it was obvious that to me and a lot of the submissions that education is no longer about being impartial or objective or that broader cultural view. Now education is more about indoctrination, about uh, what I call in my latest book, a politically correct dictionary and guide, more about what George Orwell warned about in 1984, about uh, groupthink, controlling language. So it's as though education is no longer about thinking independently, rationally. Uh, I mean, the Enlightenment, for example, that really we go back to in terms of the importance mm. of the scientific method. Education now more is about emotion and feeling. And a lot of young people your age, when I talk to them, often it's not I think, therefore I am. Mm. It's more I feel, therefore I'm right. Mm. And so a lot of the debate and argument now, unfortunately, is about emotion and logic and rationality doesn't have much to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose that kind of leads to where a lot of your recent conversations now are around this almost full-blown crisis that we have on our hands in our education system. And, and you mentioned your new book. I believe that in, in releasing that, you've had some discussion um, on Sky News and other national platforms about this idea of a crisis in education. So what, what, what do you mean by that? And what are some of the core issues? You've, you've started to shed some light on those, but how does your new book kind of discuss these? Um, what are the discussions that people are contacting you um, about to get, to get more light on? Yeah, I mean, education is a multifaceted business. Uh, I mean, in the curriculum review I did, I co-chaired that, I kind of broke education down into at least uh, four, I think it was from memory, approaches. I'm very much interested in the purpose of education, 
I mean, there's a lot of debate about resourcing and funding and budgets, like with the Gonski scheme. But I'm more interested in the purpose of education. Why do we go to school? Why do we go to university? I mean, one approach is a utilitarian one, to get a job, to make money. Uh, so it's all about productivity, the economy, uh, making Australia more internationally competitive, getting a mortgage, getting a house, all the things we need to live. So one approach is utilitarian. Another approach is more a neo-Marxist approach about being socially critical. So the argument there is that we live in a capitalist society. It's hierarchical. It's uh, oppressive. There are disadvantaged groups, whether it's uh, migrant or Indigenous or women or LGBTQI plus people. So this second approach is more about critiquing, analysing, deconstructing education. And that was obvious in, when we reviewed the national curriculum. So the argument there, for example, is you focus on things like climate change, on disadvantage and equity, and the point being that you take the long march, you reshape society by reshaping the education system. Mm. So that's the second view. The third view is more about... Uh, 21st century learning, all about the future, competencies, generic skills. Uh, the argument is knowledge is old-fashioned, obsolete. We don't mm. need to know about history or about the past because we're now in the digital age where young people like you are knowledge navigators, teachers become facilitators. Mm. We don't teach anymore. So that's a third approach, always looking at the future. And another approach is more what I call a student-centred view, especially in secondary schools now, primary and secondary, where you shape the curriculum around what's most relevant and contemporary to the student. So there's more student engagement, student activism, and you see that in the, uh, uh, the regular strikes we're now having on Fridays about climate day striking. So... There are a number of views about education. My, my one, and I mentioned the liberal view, is more about enculturation. Mm. So it's more about saying we live in a Western, liberal, democratic society, which goes back to Europe, to the United Kingdom, to ancient Greece and Rome. Education is about introducing students, young people, to that conversation, as Michael Oakeshott calls it. So if you're looking at literature, it goes back through, obviously, Australian literature, Patrick White, David Malouf and others. It goes back to uh, England, whether it's Dickens or T.S. Eliot or Wordsworth. goes back to European writers like Dostoevsky or Ibsen, Chekhov, and even back to the ancient Greeks with Greek tragedy. So there are a number of views about education. Mm. Often they conflict. And what's worrying me, and I talk about it, in the latest book, is that we've now moved from a balanced approach where enculturation is no longer considered. Mm. It's no longer on the radar. So when there's a crisis in education, part of it is about literacy and numeracy that Australian students are going down the tube in terms of international testing uh, in literacy and numeracy. And there's Tim's. Pisa and Pearls. So we're now ranked about 2024 
whereas we were once in the top ten. Wow. Mm. So there's a crisis in terms of standards, but I'm also more interested in the moral and spiritual and aesthetic value of education. And unfortunately, a lot of young people, even your age, now leave school without any strong grounding in morality, in ethics, in in what is truth, what is beauty. Mm. And that gets back to Christianity and religion, but it also gets back to a liberal view of education, uh, especially music, art uh, and literature. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so that's that's quite a good background. I uh, I've got a question maybe before we jump into a, a fun segment that um, that we like to do each week. Um, it it I, I can remember back to when I was in school. There was one particular teacher who stood out to me as probably a favorite teacher, and probably for the reason that you said, probably taught me a lot of truth, but also gave me a good um, ethical standing. That when I left school, I. I felt like I'd been taught that kind of thing throughout school, which which I really value to this day. Do you, is there a uh, teacher you've either met or you had yourself that is like a favourite teacher of yours? I mean, if I go back to uh, and I went to Broad Meadows High School in Melbourne. Shout out, which back in the day. Huh? Shout out to uh, Broad Sorry. Meadows High School. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it was very working class. It was housing commission. And uh, back in the day, we didn't know we were disadvantaged. You know, there's a lot of victim mentality around now uh, where, you know, they talk about snowflakes and having trigger warnings at university and safe spaces. But back in the day when I was growing up, we were all just Aussie kids. I mean, we got on with it. didn't matter whether we were Chinese or or German or or, or French or Australian. We just got on with uh, enjoying it. But back in the day, uh, one teacher, Peter Mackey, at lunchtime would show films, Shakespearean films, with uh, Sir Lawrence Olivia. And that gave me, it opened a whole door, if you like, a whole panorama of a rich cultural inheritance about language. I mean, the poetry of Shakespeare is astounding Mm. in terms of the imagery and the metaphors. Uh, So the language. But also there are eternal themes, if you like, about guilt, about uh, loss, about suffering, about pride and about ambition, Mm. uh, uh, about good and evil, which often people don't talk about good and evil anymore. But Peter Mackey had a profound impact. And then when I was at university, Brian Crittenden uh, supervised my doctorate. I did a PhD looking at the curriculum. And he... uh, was a really strong advocate for a liberal view of education, which uh, we had a Blackburn report in Victoria many years ago, which talked about our best validated knowledge and artistic achievements. And what Brian Crittenden was able to do was to give me a strong grounding in that heritage, if you like, that narrative of a liberal view of education, which is no longer taught, frankly. It's kind of disappeared which is a great shame, but it does go back to T.S. Eliot, to Matthew Arnold, to people like Cardinal Newman. His ideal of a university was always about truth and beauty and uh, spirituality. Mm. So Brian Crittenden was another uh, teacher who had a significant impact. 
Oh, that's there you awesome. Go. There's, a, there's a shout out to two fantastic yeah. teachers there from uh, Dr. Kevin's history. If they're listening, there you go. You got you got the cake for the best teacher Dr. Kevin thinks he's ever had. <laughs> that's that's, hey, quite, uh, a, that's Ke- quite an achievement. It is. That's something. Cam hey, mentioned uh, there's a fun segment we like to do, and then we're going to jump into a series of four core questions that we use to shape our 60-minute study, Kevin. Uh, but the first part of this is what we call the experts exam. And this is where we flip it a little bit because if we've done a 60-minute study to try and become experts, well, of course, as you know, your teaching background, you would you would be aware there needs to be some sort of exam in place to assess whether we've achieved that status. So <laughs> what we would like you to do, if, if you would, is to ask us one question that you think an expert on education should know the answer to. We'll give you our best answer and then you can grade us and tell us whether you think our 60-minute study was, uh, let's call it satisfactory or, or whether we have more study to do. I think I know which way it will go, but the, the exam's always fun anyway. I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll explain Kevin's face at the moment for all our listeners. It is going, looking at us going, y- y- you've got no chance for this question. <laughs> that's, that's how I feel right now. Okay, Kevin. A, a no, I'm trying to think of a few, a few easy ones. Uh, okay, number one. If you're teaching prep or grade one, we used to call it grade one, grade two, year one, year two, what, what is the most effective way to teach little kids how to read? <laughs> oh, oh. Uh, Caleb, does this fall in your category? Uh, no, I think it's you, Cam. <laughs> <laughs> we no, were trying to handball Do you want to go other. first, Cam? No, no, you go first. You go first. <laughs> okay. Give it a shot. I would say for, I'm thinking, so prep grade one, grade two, you're talking about four, five, six-year-olds. I think story time is one of the best memories I have from that from that age. So, And, and I genuinely think that my love of reading stories today uh, comes from looking what right back to story time at that age. So I'm going to go ahead and say to read to them. Okay. I'm going to. I'm going to say that. I would okay. I would go with practical, like maybe playtime, like, you know, learning about maybe how things work or how things move through, like playing or like touching. And maybe that's just me. But yeah, that's probably the things I remember most. <laughs> well, unfortunately, you're both wrong. Oh. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I don't know. Well, you see, that's my mistake. We no longer pass or fail anyone at school, as you know. We no yep. longer mark <laughs> yes. kids 10 out of 10. We've got to be or, gentle here. Yeah, because we've <laughs> got to nurture your self-esteem and make sure we don't offend you. Uh, no, so our you experts don't us. tend to do that on this podcast, Kevin, so don't, don't, don't trouble yourself with that. We've got a lot of fails <laughs> I mean, on this podcast so far. <laughs> in Queensland, a couple of years ago, they, they said you have to stop marking with a red pen because students would find it offensive mm. if you had a red pen. And, uh, oh, dear. Obviously, uh, it's a complex issue, but when you look at reading in the early years, we've had two approaches. One is about reading, story reading. It's called a sort of a whole word approach, immersion, surround kids with picture books and stories and get them to look at it, and that's fine. But increasingly we're finding out that a lot of boys in particular are illiterate when they get to year six or year seven because they need a more structured uh, approach which is called phonics and phonemic awareness. So you need to know the alphabet back to front. You need to know the relationship between letters and sounds. 
So if you come across a word you've never seen, you can break it into syllables and consonants or vowels and you can kind of work it out. So mm. there's a lot of research now and it's been a big debate for 20, 30 years that the most effective way is that more structured approach where you learn about phonics and phonemic awareness. You know, it's a bit like how do you learn how to write a sentence? Yeah, yep. Yeah, you, you can read a book or people can talk to you, but at some stage you need to know about nouns, adjectives, mm. pronouns. You need to know about what's an adverbial clause or an adjectival phrase. I mean, a lot of young kids now, when they write, they've got no idea yeah, <laughs> of yep. like verb agreement. <laughs> yep. right, so a lot of these things have to be taught. Yeah, and I, I, um, my dad's actually a teacher or taught for a lot of years, and he is the exact same. He agrees, would totally agree with what you said there. Because um, in Queensland, well, at least when I went through school, we did this thing called Spalding, which taught us about those things. Oh, yeah. um, exactly what you you said there. And that's been a large point of being able to, you know, spell out words or make sense of how it fits in a sentence or where words go. So I would totally agree with what you said there. And I think um, <laughs> at least looking back on my education journey, I could say that those things have really taught me a lot. And they're probably some of the only things I remember from primary school. So, Cam, why are you so bad at reading then? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I, I should say as well, and I'm saying this for my for my, for my my safety, let's go with that. My wife's a teacher. I actually just got a letter from the New South Wales Teachers Guild last no, night. you're Apparently not allowed she's to a... say wife. Oh, sorry. I mean, you've yeah, yeah, yeah. me already. So, do you <laughs> want me to say partner? Your, <laughs> uh, or your, your, your non-binary... Uh, uh, partner. I can assure you, Kevin, she is a woman and she's pleased to be called a wife. So okay, is that okay if I refer to her as that because she's okay with it? No, you have to call her a cis female. Okay. A c- and you're a cis male. So okay. they're, they're people who are happy with their sexuality on their birth certificate. Okay. Okay. So I'm a cis male. My Partner, wife, female, cis, female, wife, partner yeah, yeah, for life. Yeah, yeah okay. Uh, also a teacher. She's she's rolling out what's called initialit, and I think from what I've heard that that's bang on uh, what you yeah, were just referring is. to. Have you had something to do with the rolling out of initialit in any way? In in New no, South no, Wales? I mean, I've been following it. Uh, there's yeah. a woman, Jennifer Buckingham, who's doing a lot of work in that area. But that was only the first question. We've still got that, three, haven't we? Oh, okay. Did you want some That's more? right. We got... Well, oh. <laughs> okay, number two. Okay, here we go. What, what does Gonski refer to? Gonski. Uh, it's gone. It's goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I feel like that name is so familiar. Yeah, it, I'm sure it, we read something. It, it, like, David it, Gonski. What? So David Gonski is the head of one of the banks. Oh. But he 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 reviewed the funding system for schools huh. under Gillard, and last year, or I think it was last year, when Trumbull or Malcolm Turnbull was prime minister, I call him <laughs> Trumbull as they do in America. Gonski reviewed there was a new funding formula. So if you go to a Catholic or independent school, the money you receive from the federal government is decided by Gonski. Ah, okay. Okay. Well, we definitely, we definitely failed that question. <laughs> yeah, I think, Absolutely I think we no get an F there. About that one. <laughs> we, 
We've got some reading to do. I do remember the name from the from the news last last year. What what would Gonski say? Fill us in, Kevin. That's I'm going to take a straight F for that. If if I'm allowed to grade myself. Well, yeah, I'm not too sure about F, because uh, now it's all about personal growth. It's developmental learning, where you have negotiated collaborative goal setting. So I can't tell you whether you've passed or failed. Mm. Because it's all about your own personal growth. Ah, so okay. Well, I'm, hopefully I'll grow from this. <laughs> yeah. But uh, now, Gonski, it's a very complicated formula, but what they're trying to do is, well, if you're a parent and you send your, and you enrol your kid in, let's say, Sydney Grammar or, or, or uh, St. Genitato in Melbourne, a Catholic school, it's a formula to work out how much money that school will get and how much the parent pays in terms of school fees. Now, obviously, there are some schools like Geelong Grammar uh, boarding. The fee can be $30,000, $40,000 a year. It's mad. Yep. But the question there is, well, how much money do they get from government? And the Gonski formula works that out. Okay. So if you're, a, if you're a wealthy parent in a privileged school, Hypothetically, you might only get $1,000 from government. Yeah, well. But if you're in a disadvantaged rural, regional, you know, Catholic school where parents are doing it hard, you might get four or 5000 from government. Okay. okay. So it's a way of working out the funding formula. Okay. There you go. Formula is extraordinary. <laughs> okay. That was uh, a- did, we, did we survive the expert's exam or is there another, qu- another question, Kevin? No, I think we'd better move on. Okay. Yeah, thank <laughs> you. <laughs> because, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely wasn't our uh, crash hottest performance there. Um, but that's all right. We got, we got lots to uh, improve on, which means that we could potentially do better in the future, right? Well, that's the whole thing about the new approach to assessment now. I mean, I use the example of if you're in a, you know, a 100-metre dash, Normally, there would be first, second, and third. Mm. So if you think about the Olympics, you know, it's who yep. came first. They they get the gold medal. Yep. Caleb would always get the gold medal mm. in school, I reckon. Now education is all about forget that because that's elitist. It's unfair. It's inequitable. You're disadvantaging people. So even the person who comes last if they've improved from like eight, say 10 seconds was their last one, they might come last, but they may have run nine seconds. So they've improved. Yep. So they get first prize. Okay. Even though they came last. Okay. There you go. That, that's a helpful picture. I do want to say. If I ran nine seconds over 100 and didn't <laughs> yeah. win, I'd be very upset. <laughs> I, would be, I would be happy with that uh, new world record, that's for sure. <laughs> that's a really helpful picture in thinking about that, though. Like you said, Kevin, we better jump into these core questions. Otherwise, okay. well, we're going to take up the rest of your day. We started with a core question about the origins of schooling and where it all began. And you've actually already said, I, I heard you say it before, the word that seems to be really important in this space. It was about enculturation. If you go all the way back to where where teaching began at the beginning of time, it was about bringing you up to speed with your culture and what you needed to survive and the, the stories that informed you of where you came from. At, at its core level, that's where education seems to have begun. 
we we arrived at ancient Egypt, ancient Mesopotamia. We went we went kind of that far back. What what would you speak to that kind of space uh, around thinking about the origins of schooling? No, well, I think you, you you're correct in what you say, and there there was uh, at, at the ANU, but also Sydney University, uh, a, a China expert, uh, Pierre Rickman, and he gave a Boyer lecture. Uh, on the ABC some years ago, and he talked about uh, teaching Australian students Chinese at the ANU, and he actually taught Kevin Rudd all those years ago. But he was saying to teach Australian students about China, it was no good unless they understood Western culture. And his argument was, uh, and I totally agree with it, you have to learn about your own culture first. And you have to be familiar uh, with that. What uh, the American, sorry, the English philosopher Oakeshott called the conversation, and he used the expression "the conversations of mankind," which is obviously politically incorrect. But if you get involved in that conversation, which goes back centuries through the Enlightenment, the Renaissance, the Reformation, through to you know, the glorious revolution in England, Magna Carta, the whole growth of Western liberal democracy, but also our art, our literature, and anybody who's travelled to Europe, you know, I mean, if you go to the Uffizi Gallery in, in Florence, if you go to uh, the museums in Paris or even in London, you get a sense of that cultural heritage which we have drawn on. So to my mind, education can have a number of... Uh, you know, the purpose of education, obviously we need to make a quid, as we used mm. to say. You need to get a job. You need to contribute to society. You need to be good citizens. So, you know, we need to understand what is meant by social obligation, reciprocity, the common good. We need to understand that, which is, you know, I'm, I'm shocked it's falling away so quickly now and mm. you only have to see the riots in America uh, to, to see that in, in London and, and Europe as well, in England. But enculturation to me is critical because if you're not grounded in your own culture, if you don't have a strong sense, you don't know what it is that you've lost or that you're missing. More importantly, and T.S. Eliot argued this, you can't really understand where you are at the moment to plan for the future to be forward-looking unless you understand the past. Mm. And he talked about uh, continuity is important in education, but to have continuity, you need to understand the past. I mean, a perfect example, I love uh, Greek tragedy. To understand modern life, you need to understand Greek tragedy, whether it's Euripides or Medea or Oedipus, mm. uh, you know, all those myths and fables about the gods, about hubris, about uh, loss, about sorrow, about, uh, you know, the whole narrative of uh, the of Homer's Iliad, the Odyssey. Unless you understand all of that, you're not grounded in all the things that you have to deal with in your own life. And there's a great American... Uh, author Joseph Campbell, who's talked about this, the importance of myths, fables, legends, not just within the Western tradition, but also obviously, and I've travelled a lot 
to India and uh, Indochina. Mm. If you look at the, uh, like, Hindu myths, the Bhagavad Gita or the Upanishad, or if you look at uh, Confucianism, a lot of these philosophies and religions have a lot in common. But to be Australian mm. or to be American or Canadian or English or New Zealand, you need a sense of that Western culture. And that's not to say mm. you don't know about others, but unless you know your own, as Pierre Rickman would argue, yeah, it's hard unless to you understand, know your own, of course, you can't really understand yeah. others properly. Mm. That makes absolute sense. So, Kevin, uh, from the point of kind of, you know, talking about culturalization, I guess that's a, when we look at the world and how world kind of does education you know there's a number of sites a number of different things out there that say that uh finland has one of the best education systems in the world and that's kind of what i found out the other day while i was doing the research into it um is there a particular reason that we can't you know uh replicate a system like finland and is that mainly because our culture is so different i mean the short answer is yes uh and a good example is, say, China uh, or, or uh, even Singapore, uh, South Korea, Hong Kong. If you look at the international testing in literacy, numeracy and science, and I think I mentioned those, mm. TIMS, Visa and Pearls, mm. the Asian countries are always in the top ten. So invariably the top six or seven countries will be uh, Shanghai, China, uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, South Korea, Japan. Finland used to be up there, but more recently Finland's fallen away a bit. Okay. Now, some of those, and, and I've done, you know, it's a funny question you've asked, but I've done four benchmarking projects where I've looked internationally because one of the things I tried to work out all those, all those years ago, was why, why was Australia going backwards compared to these other countries? Now, there are a couple of things you can't transpose. You can't say with, with Shanghai or Singapore, there's a very strong Confucian ethic in terms of respecting teachers, valuing education, understanding that for parents in particular, the, the best thing they can give their children is a solid grounding academically. And so in a lot of these Asian countries, the way to get ahead to succeed is through learning. And there, mm. there's that very strong sense of respecting authority. In Australia, we're more egalitarian, laissez-faire, don't worry too much. There's a bit of a... She'll dislike. be right, mate. Yeah, there's a bit of a cultural cringe, you know. We we don't like nerds. I mean, the perfect example is is cricket or rugby or sport. That'll be on the front page, whereas our great scientists or mathematicians or artists generally they're sort of buried somewhere in the paper. <laughs> so it's very hard to translate that. There are, other, there are other things you can do. I mean, these countries that do better, their classrooms are more disciplined, better organised. The teacher is 
uh, respected. One of the unfortunate things where Australia does very well, we have one of the highest, highest rates of disruption and badly behaved classrooms. I thought you were going to say something positive. (laughs) Well, you said um, something we do really well, and I was like, oh, yes, here we come, positive. uh, No. No. (laughs) So there's an area we can work at. Yeah. Because, I mean, we've made it worse because the approach to pedagogy or classroom teaching that we've adopted in Australia, more so than anywhere else in the world, is based on what's called constructivism. Mm. Now, I won't go into that, but you can kind of say there are two approaches to how you manage a classroom. Mm. One is what they call direct instruction, explicit teaching. The other is more negotiated, collaborative goal setting. You have primary school kids rolling around on the floor or with their iPads and, you know, group work and the teacher, sometimes you don't even know where the teacher is. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But you do need structure and discipline. I mean, what they call time on task. Mm. So there are some things we can learn from the stronger performing countries. There are other things we won't be able to translate. But, I mean, another one, obviously, is the curriculum. When I reviewed the national curriculum, co-chaired that, if you look at what the curriculum syllabuses are or documents are overseas, they're succinct, precise, detailed, and they focus on what's essential in terms of the different subjects, whereas our curriculums, state, federal, national, are, as the Americans would say, a, a mile wide and an inch deep. Yeah, okay. Our curriculum is very fragmented, very superficial. So, again, there's a relatively straightforward way of addressing that but the problem is, and this is what I talk about in one of my books, Dumbing Down, is that the education establishment in Australia is committed to constructivism, collaborative, negotiated goal setting, mm. uh, the crowded curriculum. So it's almost impossible to change. Okay. So, yeah. so really there's, it, yeah, like you said, there's, there's a whole bunch of different reasons that we couldn't change, but there, like you said there, there is room for improvement. And I guess, uh, you know, you said Finland's kind of fallen off the bandwagon a little bit, maybe from the top, but, uh, something I read was that they actually made a big improvement from being quite a average education system a few years back at the beginning of the two thousands. And now they've kind of developed over time. So there, the, I guess what you're saying is there is hope to actually improve, but it kind of means that we have to come up with a more uh, succinct way of what we want education to be and what the point of it is in Australia. Is that, is that a good summary of what you said there? I mean, that's a good beginning. Uh, yep. I mean, there are so many variables. Uh, one of the greatest problems in education is that every two or three years, you know, the politicians, state, federal, or the bureaucrats, dream up another plan that's going to solve solve the problem. Mm-hmm. It's going to raise standards. I mean, a good example last year under Turnbull when he was Prime Minister was there was a review of excellence uh, chaired by Gonski, David Gonski. Number one problem, he doesn't know anything about schools or education. <laughs> he, he's a banker. I mean, so hello, duh. <laughs> Number two, the people on the committee None of them were curriculum experts. Uh-huh. So, again, 
I mean, hello, guys, what are you doing here? Now, they have come out with a whole new approach, which is just going to ensure, guarantee, even worse standards in the future. And currently in New South Wales, there's a review of school education and the curriculum by Jeff Masters, who's head of the Australian Council of Educational Research. Now, the problem there is I don't believe he's ever taught in a school. He's not a curriculum expert. He's a measurement man. So he's more into testing and uh, psychometrics. So he doesn't really know uh, the bread and butter, you know, the guts of it. So, again, uh, what he's suggesting in the draft report came out last year is guaranteed to even further dumb down standards. Mm. And it was interesting, Mark Latham, who uh, is now in the upper house in New South Wales, Legislative Council, uh, mm. I think One Nation, he chaired a committee on education that put out a report a couple of months ago, which was very, very good because he pinpointed what the problems were and gave some very good solutions. But the difficulty with education in Australia, and you guys are too young to remember, but there used to be what was called the Industrial Relations Club. So the old arbitration, conciliation arbitration system in Australia, it was run by the Industrial Relations Club, the unions, the employees. They would all get together and work it out what mutually benefited one another, you know. I mean, it was Hawke Keating who broke that apart and, and really opened up the economy. Mm. In education in Australia, it's run by six or seven people. Ministers come and go. Mm. I mean, Pickley did nothing in New South Wales. Uh, I can't even remember the one who took <laughs> after Pickley. Uh, <laughs> he did very little. And, and I think it's Sarah Mitchell at the moment in New South Wales equally as, uh, you know, ineffective. The problem is the politicians come and go, whereas the yeah. educational bureaucrats are there for 20, yeah. 30, 40 years. Which is, which is so, con- it's so confusing to look at because even to someone like myself who is clearly not experienced in this area to, like, I, I can look at that and go, wait, hang on. So we don't have education experts in these positions. And second of all, we move the politicians through these positions so fast they never are there long enough to implement, well, first of all, valuable change, or second, long enough there to make that change even take place, even if they weren't shooting at the right target in the first place. You're dead right. I mean, you've nailed it. Uh, so you get 10 out of 10 for that. Oh, good work, <laughs> I'll take that. There's, there's well, one thing uh, we get a 10 out of 10 on today, and that's uh, good job, Caleb. Uh, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. Look, I, that was a really, really good summary because thinking about schools around the world, it, it, it to talk about even just things like respect for the teacher as something of a, of a cultural value. That's really helpful to think about as a, as a differentiator between different regions, countries individually. Uh, there's these interesting alternative methods to teaching. I'll call them. You referred to explicit teaching. I've heard, I've heard my uh, cis female partner uh, refer to that before. So I had some idea there uh, as well as that, the collaborative side of things, which seems to be all the rage right now. If you look at what's the, what the, what the larger, more financially resourced schools might be marketing, it seems to be around that. But then as well, you have these things like Montessori, Reggio Emilia, Steiner, uh, that are kind of growing in different areas. So talking about alternative methods of schooling, uh, is there anything that excites you there, Kevin, or that you think is worth paying attention to? Uh, yeah, I mean, 
And another one is homeschooling. And, uh, you know, I, I don't mean what happened over the last month or two <laughs> in terms of kids being at home. I mean homeschooling. So parents who've decided not to enrol their kids and to actually over five or six or seven years teach them at home. I mean, I'm a bit of a libertarian in, in that I, I, I don't like government control. I don't like uh, top-down bureaucratic um, I think it was uh, The Road to Serfdom where Hayek talks about the dangers of government, of bureaucracy, and, you know, whether it's totalitarian regimes like China or uh, old uh, USSR. The danger is if governments maintain control, they really aren't effective because it's the people as the Americans would say, where the rubber hits the road, that really know what's going on. Mm-hmm. So when you're talking about schools, for example, I'm a great believer in diversity, choice and autonomy. You know, I don't believe schools should be run out of head office, whether it's Canberra or Sydney or Melbourne or, or Brisbane. I do believe mm-hmm. schools should have a fair degree of autonomy and within a broad accountability regime, but a fair amount of autonomy and diversity. So obviously you mentioned them. You've got Montessori. You've got uh, more classical, you know, there's a, a school in Melbourne, there's one in Sydney, based on a classical liberal view of education. You've got uh, Steiner. You've got independent Anglican schools, Jewish schools. I mean, I'm, I'm a great believer in diversity and choice. And, you know, you're not allowed to say it but also in the market because the good thing about non-government schools, parents choose to send their children to a school where they're paying school fees. Mm. And the minute you're paying out five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 a year, yeah. you're very much interested in what is happening in terms of your kid's education. Yeah. So there needs to be a bit of an yeah. incentive there. Now, I'm not totally libertarian. So it's not like the cultural revolution under Mao where, you know, a thousand blossoms bloom. You need a broad accountability regime and a broad sense of, well, in the curriculum, I'd argue regardless of whether you're at a Catholic, Anglican, Islamic school or a government school, there should be a core curricula, a core curricula that all kids learn. So all kids should learn about the Westminster parliamentary system, Mm. what it means to be in terms of civic engagement, what their responsibilities are to the common good, to reciprocity, to building social capital. Would would you go so far as to call it enculturation? (laughs) Absolutely. Mm. But, uh, you know, there needs to be, well, it used to be called a common core curriculum. So there are things Mm. that all kids should learn, but there are other things where you give diversity and choice. Now, the reality is, though, as a parent, I probably would not send my kid, and I don't want to offend anyone, I wouldn't send my kid to a Steiner or a Montessori. I'm more a classical, traditional parent Mm. where I think kids need a bit more structure, a bit more discipline and a broader curriculum. Mm. So uh, I'm all in favour of choice and diversity but I also understand you've got to follow the evidence about yeah. what is most effective and what and actually works. 
Yeah, absolutely. And you said at you as a more classical parent, what about in thinking about your child? Because a lot of the argument from these kinds of spaces seems to be about, well, choose what will suit your child's learning. Obviously, there's diversity in, in children as well. So is it that your children perhaps would fit the classical style and others' children may better fit the Montessori? Or is it more that you have that belief that there's the empirical evidence available, classical education is the way to go for for, for most? Yeah, I mean, it's got to be both. It's got to be both. I mean, uh, many years ago when we had technical schools, where I grew up in Broadmeadows, there was Broadmeadows High School and Broadmeadows Technical School. So at year seven, which was probably too early after primary school, you either went on the technical pathway or the secondary pathway, which was more about going on to year 11 and 12, going on to tertiary, and whereas the technical schools tended to be apprenticeship, trade. Now, you need a balance there. I would suggest some kids are more suited to a technical pathway. So I don't believe every kid should be forced to do an academic, competitive, you know, uh, year 12 going on to tertiary study. I mean, a lot of boys in particular, and this is one reason we have student disengagement and behavioural problems, a lot of boys get to 14, 15, year 10, they're out, I mean, they're fed up. They mm. want to get out and get a job, yeah. do a hands-on trade and apprenticeship. So kids will have different abilities, interests, motivations, but within that, you know, with our son, God bless him, uh, James, we said you will do Latin and music, play the clarinet, till year 12. After year 12, you make up your own mind that we're paying the school fees. <laughs> this is a great opportunity for you to broaden your education. So we'd really appreciate if you kept up with the Latin and the music. Yep. Now, that will work with most kids, some kids it won't work, and I've seen parents who get their kids to year 10 or year 11 and they'll say, well, it's not working. Move them somewhere else uh, to a different school with a different philosophy or else they uh, you know, when they're old enough, get a job. Mm. I think I think what you're saying there, you know, uh, there's, you know, uh, sometimes students can't appreciate fully what education really is, <laughs> what school is, because it seems like when particularly you, when at you're a young, certain age, perhaps, yeah. Well, <laughs> when you're young, it's just the thing that you do. Like when you're six or seven, you just have to go to school, and that's just part of it. And not yeah. until you, uh, I guess, you sometimes grow up a little bit more past school, maybe well into life or maybe even during school, you realize, oh, this is actually quite a blessing that I get to learn in this environment or get to choose subjects I want to learn about or, mm. you know, push in this direction. But I think that exactly what you said there, for some students, they do realize that in those years they go, oh, maybe I'm actually just a lot better with technical skills than I am with wanting to learn mathematician still skills and so i guess there's that the argument sure. for both right i mean the the the, 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 uh, the danger of doing it too early yeah. of giving kids autonomy and allowing the kid to choose too early is that they don't know anything they want to try mm. them all they want to test it all they want to they yeah. want to yeah they've got no basis on which to make a decision yeah if you follow me so my view is to have a broad education at least up until year 10 yep and then you can start to specialise. Yeah. And you might find, uh, you know, kids will go different pathways. And the reality is too, I mean, 
uh, you know, <laughs> I was a pretty bad student, so I failed <laughs> uh, maths in year 10, French in year 11, economics, you know, when we failed in year 12. <laughs> I totally failed second year university because I was playing hockey and chasing young ladies uh, to a degree. Of course, it was a different age. It was the Cultural Revolution. Uh, as, uh, yeah, great was it to be alive, but to be young was very heaven, as Wordsworth said about, about the French Revolution. But anyway, that's a sort of a segue. But after I started teaching, I realised that I needed to know more. Mm. And then when I was about 28, 29, I went back and did the postgrad and did the doctorate, uh, the PhD, and then, you know, started to write books. But if you like, I was a late bloomer in terms of following that academic uh, path, whereas earlier on I, I, saw, I was a bit lost. Mm. So that happens to young kids. Yeah, I mean. Totally. But what I'm saying is don't shut the door too early. Yeah, yeah. That's Very a good way good. of putting it. Uh, we do actually have a, a young listener who uh, wrote in. They wanted us to kind of look into this topic a bit more. And they also wrote in some questions um, that they had just about the whole idea of uh, education and being in school. And so I thought I'd ask them. He's written in three questions. I also thought maybe I'd ask him in a quick fire round kind of thing um, and you can give your your thoughts on these questions because they're they're particularly what he was interested in in being okay. in school. Um, the first question is: Do students learn better in same sex classes? Uh, if we're talking in that kind of way, is there any evidence that shows that it works <laughs> better if they're streamlined into uh, you know a, a gender binary gender or whatever? Or is there does it work better being uh, split into everyone all together? I mean, that's a very good question and it's a difficult one to answer because the research is not settled. Mm. Uh, I mean, you'll get arguments both ways. Uh, our children went to, Amelia went to a girls' school, James went to a boys' school. Now, that was based on our belief that it was better to separate them. Uh, it depends on the kid, uh, the student, but my view uh, certainly for boys in particular and uh, this is a view that I have personally, that it was better for James to be in a boys' school where he could do music, play the clarinet, uh, play hockey, be sporty, and be with his friends, his mates, in that sort of culture where he wasn't distracted by girls in the class. <laughs> I wondered if the distracted word was going to come in, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially, you know, year 11, 10, 11, 12. Uh, I mean, the research is clear that girls tend to do better at year 12 in single sex schools. And the argument here is that, and this is an interesting area to look at, girls and boys respond differently to various approaches to teaching. Yeah, okay. Now, a good example would be learning to read and write and, and literature. Girls respond more positively to the way literature is taught and essay writing, say, than boys do the way it's currently taught. Uh, I mean, girls in, in a classroom where there are girls, often there's a more affirmative sense, a positive sense of their, you know, their gender identity 
and they're not caught up with the sort of the whole social scene of interacting. Uh, they can focus on their academic studies. So girls tend to do better at year 12 in single-sex schools, but it depends on the kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm not going to go either way. It depends on the, what the parents want, what the student uh, is like. But uh, it, it, it's not a settled question. Okay. Yep. There's no definitive answer to that. Okay, well, there you go, Dan. No definitive answer at the moment. Okay, his next question was, how does access to technology ac- uh, affect study? So, uh, you know, we used to... Yeah, I mean, that's not- an important one. Yep. Yeah. I mean, we're using the technology now. I've got no problem with that. Uh, but one of the interesting bits of research I looked at last year was the OECD uh, analysis of the PISA test. Australia has one of the highest rates of using technology in the classroom. Mm. So whether it's whiteboards or digital technology, the internet, computers, laptops, Australia has one of the highest rates of use, but we're falling down the ladder in terms of results. And whereas those other countries that are doing better don't rely on technology as much, mm. as much. And the, the research is tending to show that too much screen time adversely impacts on students' ability to concentrate, to think, to get to be patient, to sit and read. I mean, one of the interesting points here is that uh, Amelia, my daughter, teaches primary school and she has prep grade or year one kids, she'll give them a picture book and they'll swipe it (laughs) because they think it's an iPad. There you go. And they've never seen a picture book with Mm. print and and coloured pictures. And and there's a woman in America, sorry, England at Oxford, uh, Greenfield, Baroness Greenfield, who's done a lot of research into cognitive psychology And there's a lot of brain research showing that too much screen time actually adversely affects your mental ability. So young kids in particular, and I don't want to get too technical, but there's what is called plasticity, that you've got a long-term, a short-term memory, and that too much screen time, you know, rapid images, uh, surfing the net, uh, visual sound, you know, movement, it actually can disturb the neuro pathways Mm. and that's why a lot of young kids can't sit quietly for more than five minutes and read a book because they're so used to that kind of imagery and sound and movement. So I'm wary of technology and I'll finish with the fact that some years ago, like Bill Gates and, and, and all the computer technology experts in Silicon Valley, they were asked, where do you send your kids to school? And they said, oh, they go to Montessori or to schools where there are no computers, no iPads. And I think it was Gates who said he doesn't allow kids, his kids to have computers in the bedroom Mm. or iPads because he believes technology can be a, a, a problem. 
Yeah, wow. Okay, mm-hmm. comes from comes from Gates himself. Then, Gates uh, himself. Yeah, that's a wise yes. opinion to have. And the last question from Dan is: um, Is there a difference between boarding private and public schools grading? And if so, what are the effects of that? What do you mean by grading? Like, how they grade students? I, I think so. Yeah, yeah I'd the have grading to of assignments and work and and exams, things like that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean. I've taught in both systems, uh, public and, and government and non-government. It depends on the school. There's a lot of variation. There's a lot of diversity. I mean, part of the problem with government schools during the 80s and 90s, they moved away from meritocracy, from competition, from academic uh, studies. A lot of government schools, the push was to say, well, our kids are disadvantaged. You know, we don't want to push them too hard. We don't want to have exams at year eight or nine. Uh, a lot of kids go through school. The first exam they face is year 12, mm. whereas in Singapore they have exams at the end of primary school. Mm. When I went to the private school in Melbourne, Campbell Grammar, we were having exams and tests at year nine, 10, 11 and 12. Our argument was get them used to it put them under a bit of pressure, give them a clear idea of how capable they are. So as a, a generalisation, I'd say that independent schools, Catholic schools, tended to focus more on that idea of a structured, competitive uh, curriculum where teachers were in charge, whereas government schools tended to move towards a more flexible, open collaborative, non-competitive. Now, that's a very broad generalisation, but I'd argue that's what happened during the 90s and 80s. Right, and we see some residue of that today. In some ways, that represents that diversity that's necessary that you were referring to earlier. It can be a good thing, but my problem is I went to a working-class school. My parents were alcoholics, you know, the old sort of, oh, life was hard, but... Mm. uh, you probably remember you, you remember Monty Python. Yep. Yes, absolutely. There's a lovely skit where they're talking about disadvantage, and he okay. says, "You know, I, I lived under a a, a a a drive, or a there was a coal station next door, and we had cardboard, wet cardboard to sleep under, and, and they went on and on about how oppressed and, it goes and back disadvantaged." And forth. I know the one. But I mean, I went to a pretty working class had a hard upbringing with alcoholic but violent dad but the good thing in the day back then was you weren't disadvantaged you went to school teachers said work hard keep your head down study serve it up to you fail this work on this overcome it and I was able to do a good year 12 go on to university Mm. my fear is a lot of disadvantaged kids are now under prepared we're selling them a week, a weaker option based on the myth that they can't achieve. And, and that's kind of happened in England, uh, you mm. know, that's quite famous. They got rid of elite government schools uh, and, and the argument from the Labor Party back then was, you know, working-class kids don't have to go to Oxford or Cambridge and wow. we shouldn't push them academically. But they shut that mm. down and then what happened was all these working-class kids who were smart didn't get into Oxford or Cambridge. No, that's right. That's the danger. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That that's a frightening thought, and that's a myth that we certainly need to push back against, um, if not anything else. Well, there's been a tremendous amount of information um, that you've shared with us this morning. I'm going to go back through this podcast with a pen and a notebook, no doubt. Uh, but before we let you go and hear about how we can stay in touch, access some of your books, and and uh, perhaps get a hold of them, can you tell us? Perhaps go a bit futurist for a moment. Tell us where you think school in Australia, the world more globally, where are we headed? as far as education and, and what it will look like as technology involves. Uh, we talked about political correctness, so many variables, but give us a futurist Kevin session. <laughs> yeah, I mean, unfortunately, uh, the future scenario from my perspective is not good because I've been banging on about it for 30 years, over 30 years, and I reviewed the national curriculum, as I said, and none of our mm. recommendations were adopted by Chris Pine, who was the education minister back then. And I'll be frank, I mean, I've met Sarah Mitchell, the education minister in New South Wales. Uh, They're going down the gurgler uh, because she's basically following what Jeff Masters wants in terms of the new curriculum. Mm. And the only politician that I think has got it right is Mark Latham and his report that his committee did uh, for the Legislative Council is well worth having a look at. So I'm, I'm, you know, not positive. I think it's more of the same, which is only going to lead further uh, down the rankings. That's not the only issue, the rankings, but I'm more concerned that, I mean, education is too important and too significant uh, not to keep banging away on. But Australia, we have one of the highest rates of self-harm of youth suicide, especially among young boys, Mm. young men. Mm. I mean, the rate of of suicide for young men is appalling. Mm. Uh, We have high rates of depression. There's a a serious drug culture. So my argument is, unless we get it right, and this is more about enculturation, uh, a sense of spiritual, a sense of moral and aesthetic, unless we give young kids that ability and I wrote a little book called Taming the Black Dog. Uh, I mentioned James, our son, God bless him. He was killed in a hit-and-run accident when he was 20. And I wrote this little book, which is on my website, kevindonnelly.com.au, and I tried to work out how you cope with loss and, and grief and sorrow and depression. And part of it gets back to not just being a Catholic and believing in, in, in God's faith. Mm. But part of it is also education mm. because if you read the classics, if you read, you know, Shakespeare or the Greeks, if you read uh, myths, fables, legends, you begin to understand that to be human is to suffer pain and adversity mm. and mm. to, you know, there's an expression, the slough of despair, the slough of despond, I think, in Pilgrim's Progress. But if you study literature, then you begin to understand about fate, about destiny, about life. Yeah. But it also gives you an, an affirmation, a positive sense that, that there is beauty, there is truth. And, I mean, some of my favourite poets, William Blake, uh, Keats, Shelley, there is a sense of uh, beauty in nature, for example, that mm. if you are able to value that, uh, you know, I think Blake talks about infinity in a grain of sand. 
uh, and, and T.S. Eliot uses an expression, all will be well, all manner of things will, will be well, which is from the Hindu text, the Upanishad. So unless you learn all of these things, if you're down and out, you've got nothing to draw on. So yeah. that to me is crucial, probably more important than rankings in terms of international testing. Mm. Because if you don't have that moral and spiritual sense of being grounded, that rich, vibrant, you know, narrative, then you really are solitary and alone. And that's where I think people turn to drugs and to self-harm. Okay. That's so, my preach for today. Uh, <laughs> Thank thanks, you, Kevin. Pastor Kevin. <laughs> well, Kevin, I, I think that was a uh, not only a great uh, way to end our conversation with you, but that also gives some great commentary on where you think uh, school is going in the future. And also, I guess you've kind of right mm. there, you've given some um, – of your advice of what you think the school system really needs in the future. And probably what I'm really grateful for, uh, for my school is probably that moral standing that it gave me. And I think that's really important as we continue for any schooling system or anyone going through education. So we really appreciate Mm. your time, Kevin. We really appreciate you, uh, taking the opportunity to speak to the young people around Australia, around the world. uh, Um, Oh, we're not allowed to go yet. Kevin's taken off from his seat. We don't know what's going on. It's a podcast exclusive. <laughs> okay. And he's got the his latest book, book. Yep. The latest book, which, which we will put I, in the uh, the show notes. So anyone who's listening to the podcast, you can go down below. There's a link that you can click and it will take you right to the website where his new book is there. A politically so, correct dictionary and guide. And I'm afraid that both of you are fellow-centric, binary, carbon-emitting, <laughs> heteronormative members of the Eurocentric <laughs> White supremacist, Judeo-Christian patriarchy. Wow! So you gotta get you gotta get woke. You guys have to get woke. Well, thanks, Kevin. That's an excellent way to finish this conversation. We really appreciate yeah, that, everyone. Here. You can find that below. You can find that in the show notes. You can find out how to get a hold of that book yourself. To get woke. <laughs> Thank you very much, Dr. Kevin. We'll talk to you very soon. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Ciao. Get woke, Cameron. Round of applause. (laughs) uh, Round of applause for Dr. Kevin Donnelly right there. um, Telling us to get woke. A uh, interesting way to end a conversation, but uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But in all seriousness, that was truly uh, there was so much to unpack from that. So like much. I said, I'm going to have to go back with a notebook and pen and listen to this podcast uh, to try and pull everything out of it. But I loved what he said at the end there. Education is is not just about what you learn during arithmetic. It's about mental health. It's about it's about well being. It's it's all of that as well. So I mm. loved everything that we learned during that. And uh, like I said, I'm going to have to review it a number of times to make sure I retain it all. Yeah, well, uh, you can find out more about Dr. Kevin Donnelly on his website, which is kevindonnelly.com.au. But like I said, we'll make sure that there is a link to that in the show notes. So feel free to go just below where you can find a link straight to his website. You can also find all his books that he's written on his website. So if you want to check out more, maybe even purchase one, you can head across to there. Uh, Particularly, he just put out a new book at the end of 2019 called A Political correct dictionary and guide and so you will be very interesting check that out some more uh on his website i know that we've got a copy ourselves caleb so uh would be interested to hear 
from our listeners what they think of this whole conversation. So it, whether you write into us via email or you write into us via social media or you leave a review on the podcast, we always appreciate listening from our listeners. And shout out particularly to Dan, one of our listeners, who has submitted this con- uh, this like this topic. This topic, and yeah. So, yeah, if you submit a topic or questions uh, you want us to ask, then feel free to let us know so that we can then pass those on to the experts. Absolutely. We hope you enjoyed that, Dan. Well, for now, it's uh, signing off from Cam and Caleb. There's a bonus episode coming out tomorrow because we owe you an episode on 5G. So watch out for that. There's an expert interview. It's a a really good one as well. Don't miss that. But uh, into the new week, we'll be back with a new topic and a new expert review and interview as well. So we look forward to catching you then. And our final piece of housekeeping really is not much else, but we are in a competition at the moment. And so we always appreciate if our listeners can help us out. If you enjoy the podcast, uh, then feel free to go to the show notes below. There's actually a way that you can vote and help support us as we do this podcast. And we always appreciate that. So if you enjoy the podcast, that's a great way to show us of your enjoyment. But for now, thanks for uh, tuning in. 